Hey, it's Nigel, and welcome back to the Crew of Japan podcast. Thank you for tuning in to this special bonus episode to hear our unabridged interview with Matt Alt. We really hope you enjoy this interview and that you check out Matt's amazing book, Pure Invention How Japan's Pop Culture Conquered the World. For this interview, Doug and I sat down with Matt over the course of 45 minutes to discuss why Japan's pop culture has become so influential to the United States. Without further ado, we hope you enjoy. Today, or tonight, depending on when you're joining us,、uh, we actually have Matt Alt joining us for an interview about Japanese pop culture and the subject of why Japan. Um, Matt is a Tokyo based writer, translator, and localizer and reporter.、Uh, he's a contributor to The New Yorker, CNN, Wired, Slate, The Economist's 1843,、uh, Newsweek Japan, The Japan Times, and Asahi Shimbun, and is the co author of six illustrated books about Japan.、Uh, so, Matt, I see the smile. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me. I feel like that was a great intro. I feel like such a grown up now. It's like, <laughs> I feel like a real writer. This is great. If ever there was a testament of a real writer, this book is it. I just hear all those accomplishments and I feel like I haven't done anything with my life. Oh, God. All I do is sit in front of my computer all day. I'm sure, you know, by simply leaving your house, you're accomplishing、uh, great things. You know, it's, it, it's hard to argue with Doug there. So that, that's a great bio. <laughs> We're so glad to have you on. Well, thanks for having me. I mean, it's a real pleasure and honor. I mean, New Orleans is one of my favorite, favorite cities on the planet. So it's just so great to be、uh, invited here and, and able to talk with you guys. And so great you have a Japan society there. It's so fitting because New Orleans has such a deep connection with Japan in so many ways. Yeah,、um, actually, I want to ask you a question. When was the last time you were actually in New Orleans、uh, visiting or work or whatever it may be? Well, the short answer is not recently enough、um, because of the pandemic. I've been you know, stuck at home like everybody else. But the most recently,、uh, Hiroko, my wife and、uh, often writing partner, and I、uh, visited in December of 2019. And we had a real great time. We spent a little under a week there. Stayed in the quarter,、um, traced the footsteps of Lafcadio Hearn, whose、uh, home in, La- in, in、uh, New Orleans is right around, it's outside the quarter a little bit, but it's, it's right around there, and、uh, kind of just you know, experienced things、uh, downtown. It was really great. That's great. Yeah. Actually, that's one of the、um, Lafcadio Hearn is one of the key connections between New Orleans and our, our sister city in Japan, Matsue. Because、uh, yes. that's where he set up shop in Japan after moving down from Tokyo、uh, a long time ago. I can't remember the、Very、year. A long time, time ago. <laughs> what had to be the 18, I guess, late, late 1600s. Yeah, yeah 70s. To late 18. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. So I heard you did a seance as well. <laughs> yes, we, Hiroko and I did a seance. There's, there's very few places in America where you can do a Victorian、uh, or I should say American spiritualist era seance with all of the trappings. And New Orleans is one of the places. And spiritualism was a really big deal in America at the turn of the 20th century.、Um, they believed you could use like electricity to contact. Uh, the world beyond. And、uh, so, you know, leave it to New Orleans to have still a service that provides this. So we did that. We unfortunately did not make contact with Lafcadio.、Um, I had so many things I wanted to ask him, but it was an amazing experience nonetheless. Well, <laughs> on that note. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, we, we definitely want to、awesome. at least, <laughs> you know, discuss your, your recent trip to New Orleans. Sure. Yeah,、uh, definitely. That's. That's amazing. You know, we wish we could have seen you then. Yes. But, well, you'll see us you next、know. time. Let's all meet at Elizabeth's,、uh, you know, the, our favorite little restaurant. Let's do it. Absolutely. So, that being said, today we have you on this episode、uh, because we are focusing on why Japanese culture has captivated so many people in the United States, but not just the United States, really around the world. But what is it about Japanese culture that has really resonated with so many people? And in order to really kick off that discussion, I think it's really necessary that we jump into kind of the historical roots of Japanese pop culture and how it was perceived,、um, especially and, and mainly for this conversation. Although we do want to you know, discuss some of how the world perceived it. We're really going to focus on how it was perceived in the United States. 
Um, so for the that being said, uh, our first question for you is actually, how was Japanese pop culture and products perceived by Americans in the world to some degree uh, prior to World War II and the decade after? Yeah, it's Japan has always kind of its its face to the world, so to speak, has always been through its products, whether they're artistic products, craft products, uh, manufactured products. And uh, that's why I chose them as products, as the lens for discussing Japan's impact on the world in, in pure invention. But as you know, you know, after Japanese ports opened in the 1850s, its first cultural exports came in the form of art. Uh, mainly woodblock prints and things like that. And that kicked off this kind of fad for things Japanese in Europe and, and England and to a certain extent America called uh, Japanism. And that basically transformed Western ideas about what art could be. Up until that moment, art was all about like kind of religious or like aristocratic sort of themes. But Japan with people like Hokusai and Hiroshige and people like that were portraying the everyday. And uh, that really had a huge impact on people like the Impressionists. And it not only had an a big impact on artists, it had an a big impact on all sorts of uh, designers and, and business people. Tiffany's reoriented itself to be uh, more Japanese, in their own words, a uh, style of uh, uh, fashion. Um, and that continued on throughout the, the 20th century. And then as Japan modernized and became this, this, this started Asia's first industrial power, some of the first things they exported were toys. And in the 1920s and 1930s, they became so uh, successful as toy exporters that American, uh, the, the American toy industry actually asked for tariffs to be put on Japanese toys to kind of block them from taking over the American toy industry. And this is really interesting because it kind of, it's, it's a kind of you know, prelude to all sorts of trade friction that's going to happen with Japan in the West. And then, of course, you know, World War II happens. And as you might imagine, with Japan being America's sworn enemy, there wasn't much of a market for Japan. Japan wasn't making much. They were desperately trying to survive. They'd been cut off in so many ways and, and funneling all of their energies into invading Asia. Uh, but in the years after World War II, uh, Japan made a comeback as, a, as an industrial power, as it rebuilt itself. But made in Japan was now a joke. It was, it was something you basically laughed at. And in my book, I talk about this. There's a famous movie called Breakfast at Tiffany's, which features Mickey Rooney, of all people, yellow facing as this like buck tooth, like Coke bottle glasses wearing Japanese guy who is kind of positioned as the antithesis to uh, Holly Golightly, who's played by Audrey Hepburn, who's the suave, debonair, uh, all-American girl. And that was the image of Japan for a very long time after World War II. They made cheap stuff, you know, cheap cheap $1 blouses, tin toys that fell apart after a couple uses, um, you know, those little umbrellas and your tiki drinks, like, you know, matches, just cheap stuff. That was Japan's image. And that didn't start to really change until the 1960s. Wow. Wow. So uh, I've sorry, that was long. <laughs> no, no, that was that's phenomenal, you know, and so insightful. Uh, so a quick question follow up. Did, how many of the I guess the, the products that existed during that time, how many of those items have actually survived to today? Like, can you find these tin toys? Can you find the, the different things you mentioned? You absolutely can. There's uh, there's quite a quite a few pre-war Japanese tin toys. There's uh, I most recently uh, saw a toy dealer showed me one made after the Russo-Japanese War. It's like a tin toy of General Nogi leading Russian defeated Russian soldiers on horses. It's like a tin toy, and there's all sorts of like kind of the, the toys we give our kids actually say more about us as adults than they do about kids. You know, kids are given toys to play with. And so that's why my book actually starts with a tin toy, uh, a tin toy Jeep that was made in 1945, right after uh, Japan uh, had basically surrendered. And tellingly, the first manufactured product that appeared on the Japanese marketplace was a toy. It was a toy Jeep based on the American military Jeep. And because Japan didn't have any uh, a natural, it didn't have any resources at the time, the gentleman who made it made it out of tin cans that he scavenged from American military bases. So you have this like effigy of this conqueror's vehicle made out of their junk, detritus, fashioned into a toy that became paradoxically the first hit product in Japan after World War, after World War II. And I just think it's really telling that this first product was a toy. 
And then it was bought not only by kids, but by adults, uh, adults who wanted to give it to kids who'd suffered so much during the war years, but also for themselves as this kind of way to tame the conquerors by holding the Jeep in their hand. Um, and uh, that led, of course, to a whole host of other things. But yes, these toys are, to answer your question, these toys are definitely still around. Uh, in fact, I have one of the Jeeps right here, um, which I found online. But uh, yeah, this ephemera is definitely still around. Wow. So you mentioned that the perception of Japan following World War II was that, the, you know, the items made in Japan equated to junk. Yes. You know, uh, I actually, I had a job interview right after I got back from Japan, uh, studying abroad in Japan. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the person who interviewed me was actually an older gentleman. And when I told him I went to Japan, he said, what, Japan, back when in my day, the proverbial back in my day, right? you know, um, right. Japan just made, you know, a bunch of crap that those were, that was his actual yeah, yeah. You know, uh, phrase. And I was, I was just like, what? So that image definitely still is in the minds of, I guess, you know, people from past generations, you know? Oh, for sure. You know, when I pitched, when I pitched my book, and this is connected directly to what you're talking about, I, I had to go to New York and talk to a bunch of editors. That's how it works when you, when you're, when you're pitching a big book proposal. And it was split pretty much down the middle. Like if you were talking to a uh, boomer era editor, I remember one interview actually started and this person had an interest in the book. That's why I was meeting with them. So this isn't like this is some kind of, you know, racist person or anything like that. Far from it. But they were like, is Japan cool? Japan? Really? And then you talk to some young millennial editor and they'd be like, oh, my God, I grew up on Sailor Moon like and, and like Gundam Wing and like Pokemon. Yes, yes, yes. I've been waiting for this. And so it was it was really interesting to just be brought face to face with that dichotomy, which is exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. it's generational. Um, so what began to really, what were some of the products that really began to change that, that image of Japan, uh, following the early years of world war two, you have the, the tin toy, uh, um, sure. what is the tin toy part of what began to change it or, or were there other products? Toys, tin toys were among the first products that GHQ, the occupying American forces, cleared for export from Japan. Um, up until the occupation ended, America had to give Japan permission to export stuff. And uh, toys uh, were one of the first things. So tin toys were some of the first Japanese products that foreigners came into contact with. And ironically, many of those toys were in the form of the exact same military weapons, such as B-29s, that had bombed Japan into submission during the war. So it's a really fascinating pivot that Japan made from this aggressor in World War II to suddenly making these effigies and selling them to the Americans. It's very pragmatic. Like they, the, the people who made these toys did it with a kind of heavy heart, but also pragmatically knowing that it would sell to the biggest, what was then the biggest market in the world. But the, 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 the product that probably single-handedly put Japan back on the map was the transistor radio. Um, it wasn't invented in Japan, but it was arguably perfected there by Sony who made this little pocketable, they called it, uh, radio that became this huge hit in the late 1950s to the point where it was like the biggest uh, Christmas product. And the following January, there was actually a heist where uh, presumably, you know, gangsters or something actually stole all of the crates of Sony radios that were in this warehouse and left all the other radios behind. And it was like a huge PR coup. Uh, for Sony, but transistor radios that you can hold in your pocket. Now we think of them as really old fashioned, but they were really the kind of iPods of their day. Um, they were a way to up until that point, radios had been this giant pieces of furniture. And it was the, you know, the Japanese who instantly and, and Sony in particular, who grasped that smaller was better. And that kicked off this whole revolution in kind of tiny electronics, you know, tiny TVs, tiny, all sorts of things that really uh, helped transform Japan's image from this you know, loser in the war and manufacturer of cheapo products to a kind of more cutting edge competitor. And the, the, the transistor radio that you just mentioned, uh, and, and the heist that also occurred that occurred in Japan or in the United States? Uh, yeah, good point. So America, New York City, actually, the heist occurred in New York City and the radio hit the marketplace, I believe in 1957. 
Um, and it was a, a really just kind of a revolutionary moment for not only for electronics and for Japan, but for like listeners everywhere, consumers everywhere who could now suddenly listen to music on the go or wherever they wanted. And that's a really key thing here. You know, Japanese, when, when Japan reaches out through consumer products, it's producing these things, but it doesn't know how they're going to be consumed. Um, you can't control that as a manufacturer. So the story of Japan's rise as a kind of, uh, whether it's a manufacturing superpower or as a fantasy superpower, which is how we know it now, is partly about Japan, but it's also in a big part about us. It's a big part about how we use these things that they made in ways often that they weren't expecting. Now, the transistor radio was probably the earliest example of this, and it was it was used as it was intended. But as the products Japan made got more and more complex, um, often they were used in ways that they didn't quite expect. And we'll get to that, I'm sure, a little bit later in this in this talk. But uh, the transistor radio is exactly where that kind of boom where Japan as the electronics master started. When when they first initially came over, were they marketed as a product from Japan, or were they just marketed kind of with the, on the sly? That's a really good. That's a really good question. Like the, the, they were made by a company that in Japan was called Totsuko, the Tokyo Tsushin Kogyo Kabushiki Gaisha, which was a really tongue twister of a name. And so, it, say that five times fast. Yes, exactly. I mean, even, <laughs> they, even Japanese people called it Totsuko. You know, for yeah. sure, they would kind of compress it. But the, uh, the the gentleman who ran it realized that this was going to be an impediment to any kind of international ambitions they had. So they renamed it with a word that was much more compact, much shorter, easy to pronounce in multiple languages, and most importantly, didn't sound Japanese at all. It was Sony. They renamed themselves Sony. So when they sold these radios under the Sony brand name, they didn't hide the fact they were Japanese, although famously uh, Akio Morita, uh, later the uh, esteemed chairman of Sony, printed Made in Japan as small as possible on the radio so that people wouldn't, it wouldn't stand out. But particularly when after that heist happened in, in early 1958 in New York City, the New York Times ran this big article about the, the TR1 radios, and they were very open about the fact they were Japanese. Um, so it wasn't any kind of like, you know, big secret, but I don't think like the department stores that were selling them were like, this is Japanese. They would, they would just put Sony radios and people would see them and buy them because they were small. And, you know, if you were, you know, sharp-eyed, you would see they were made in Japan, um, but they didn't, they certainly didn't put it front and forward that this is from Japan. I think that was a, a minus at that era, which is exactly why Sony called itself Sony and not like, you know, the great rising son of Japan company, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's, which is also much longer too. <laughs> and, and not to mention, you're only, you're only about a decade removed from World War yes. II, so I'm sure the perception wasn't exactly the, still in the upper echelon of, of ideal mar uh, like people who are going to producing your products or people you want to buy from. Yeah. People who had actually fought Japan, you know, like physically fought, probably maybe even hand-to-hand -hand combat, you know, for all we know, 1950s, there were certainly a lot of those people alive. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, that was a big hurdle to overcome as a, as a company who's trying to make consumer products that you're selling to consumers who a decade before you'd been fighting. You know, and it's an amazing pivot, a, a really fast pivot, uh, probably unprecedented uh, that that a country who had been so entrenched in a battle with a nation. I mean, they bombed Pearl Harbor only what, like 15 years before that. Yeah, that's an incredibly short period of time. That's less than a period of time between like the you know, 2000 and today. So it's um it's a really fascinating and amazing moment in uh, post-war history when Japan kind of reemerged as this uh, electronics and and consumer product uh, uh, empire. So the the tin toys were one of the very early exports. You also get the transistor radio. Is there are there any other really early uh, exports that really caught on in the United States? No, but there are kind of trends percolating in Japan around this time in the 1960s and the early 1970s that are going to really come into play later. For instance, 1963 marks the debut of anime. Um, and when I say that, I literally mean anime. It was uh, that word was coined by its creator, Osamu Tezuka, who uh, invented the character in the series Astro Boy to distinguish Japanese made animation from animation which is the Japanese pronunciation for cartoons of any kind, whether they're from Japan or America or Europe or anything. 
1963 marked the debut of Astro Boy, which was Japan's first televised uh, full-length uh, anime series. And it was huge. It was absolutely huge. And it kicked off this boom for anime in Japan. And Japan was enjoying this kind of renaissance of illustrated entertainment, not just on the TV screen, but also in the form of manga. And this, it, it had developed there. There was nothing like the American Comics Code, which told you that you had to, good had to always triumph over evil. The Comics Code was put into place in America in the late 50s to basically stop the, the growth of comic books into more mature mediums. They wanted to keep it simple. They were worried that it was too gory and grotesque. You know, they wanted, they were worried that kids' minds were being reprogrammed by these kind of violent crime stories and things. So in America, this Comics Code Authority was established. In Japan, there was nothing like that. So comic books, which already were operating at this kind of high level because Japan had such a long history of illustrated entertainment in the form of its woodblock prints, those same ones that you know, influenced Japan, uh, influenced the West after uh, the opening of its harbors. There was a long respect and tradition for drawing uh, illustrations and putting text next to them and making these narratives that wasn't seen as childish or silly or stupid in Japan. So by the end of the 1960s, comic books had transformed from this kid stuff into literally the, the vocabulary for the student revolution, the student demonstrations that were going on. America, uh, in America, kids were protesting against the Vietnam War. In Japan, they were too, but they were also kind of protesting against their own system. And in, instead of folk music and rock, they used comic books as their kind of shared lingo um, comic books dealing with all sorts of, you know, uh, topics that were kind of, they, they would deal with topical things, but cloaked in like ninja stories or samurai stories, or famously a boxing story, Ashton Ojo, which is kind of like Japan's Rocky, but, um, it kind of nourished the student revolutionary movement there. So you have this, uh, kind of new form of entertainment that it still at this point hasn't come into the West at all. But it's kind of percolating there in the background, and that's going to play a huge role a, co a couple decades hence, as uh, we'll probably get to. But so you have things like the transistor radio, you have manga and anime, and then around 1970, the karaoke machine gets invented. Another thing that isn't necessarily going to come to the States for a while, but is a kind of key uh, uh, component of, of Japan cool, you might say. Uh, another key Japanese consumer product uh, that was made exclusively for salarymen. Japanese office workers to use to let off steam after work. That's what the original karaoke machine was for. And over the years, as these things developed, uh, strange, strange new fields would start to be fertilized and strange new trends would be created. So there's a lot happening in Japan in that post-war era, from toys to consumer electronics to appliances and to new forms of artistic expression. Wow. So... One quick question. So with Astro Boy, there was an early attempt to localize it in the, you know, and bring it to the United States. But my understanding is that it wasn't that successful. No, no, it was. It was actually hugely successful. It was, um, but it wasn't broadcast on the main channels. It was broadcast like in syndication only on local ones. So like nobody really expected much from it. But the people who saw Astro Boy were really shocked by its stylishness, which is kind of ironic because Astro Boy's style, like so much of anime style, was dictated by the limitations of its budget. It was what we know as now as limited animation, you know, like it was pioneered by Hanna-Barbera, where you're using much fewer cells of animation, fewer frames to achieve movement. And so it looks a little janky compared to like Disney, Disney, which is really fluid. But instead of uh, uh, actually being a detriment, those kind of limitations were used really in a savvy way by Osamu Tezuka to create this kind of a dramatic style that didn't need so much motion. Like he actually used the freeze frames and he used the the, the limited uh, uh, animation as a kind of new tool, as, as a new uh, form of expressive style. And that stylishness was not unnoticed by people in the West. Famously, Osamu Tezuka got a postcard or a letter actually from Stanley Kubrick, uh, the director who asked, who saw Astro Boy and asked Tezuka to collaborate on doing designs for 2001 A Space Odyssey. And Tezuka declined because uh, he was busy. He was like the biggest manga uh, artist in Japan at the time. But it's really intriguing to me to imagine like 2001 A Space Odyssey with like an anime sensibility to it instead of what it became, uh, which I love that movie. It's great. But it's it's mind blowing to me to imagine a collaboration between Osamu Tezuka and, and Kubrick. And it's a testament to the fact that even though there's a lot of 
you know, closed-minded people out there or people who, rem who, who had trauma from World War II. There are also a lot of like tastemakers out there and really forward-looking people who saw what Japan was making and were like, hmm, this is really interesting stuff. So you have that dynamic at play too. Wow. So we've been alluding to this, you know, it's, it's coming, you know, it's really going to catch on with the, you know, American population or, you know, these ideas really percolating in Japan. Was there a breakthrough year or, or what, what was the breakthrough moment where it all actually caught on with the United States and really spilled out beyond Japan? I think if you were going to like, you know, hold a gun to someone's head and, and force them to pick, you know, this is like, a, this is a more of a flow than it is like a, a, a pivot, you know, kick turn kind of thing. But if you were going to pick a year, probably 1980 would be it. And the reason for that is that's when the Walkman arrived on American shores. Now, you know, it's funny, we don't really use Walkmans anymore, but even people from a younger generation know what it is because it was such an iconic thing. It was, a, it was, uh, it was used cassette tapes it wasn't like mp3 based or anything but it was a portable music player that came with small headphones that you could walk around with and kind of curate your own personal soundtrack to and that was a huge breakthrough like today we were all look at us we're all wearing headphones you know we're all listening to music and you know doing what we're doing but it's back in 1979 when when sony debuted the walkman not even they had a clue that this was going to be anything more than a kind of gimmick a kind of wacky gadget for that season. But it totally transformed not only the way we listen to music, but the way that we lived our lives, particularly in urban environments. Like Sony had been so afraid that the Walkman would isolate people when they put their earphones in that they famously in the first incarnation uh, put a second audio jack so a second person could jack in their own headphones and there was a button to turn off the music so you could talk to each other through it because they were really worried it would isolate people. It turned out that isolation is exactly what people wanted. You know, you're in this big city, there's jackhammers, there's people screaming, there's horns honking, you know, it's obnoxious. You want to just kind of commute in peace, you know, on the, on the subway, God knows what's happening. There's like all sorts of people like, you know, shouting and talking and doing whatever. The, the, the Walkman helped you tune all of that out and create this kind of personal bubble, this, this media sphere that you curated. No, there's no gatekeepers telling you what to listen to. You listen to it. So you have this kind of user curated content, you have portable electronics, you know, music as a, a kind of almost like a drug to help you get through the stress of daily life. And it was the first time humanity realized that they could put a fast forward button on life. You know, you know how it is. It's like, oh, man, another half hour commute to work. You pop in your favorite tape. Bam, you're there. Like you don't even notice it anymore. And now we all experience this in a kind of steroid enhanced way with the iPhone, you know, uh, and it's very telling that um, one of the first tastemakers to appreciate truly what the Walkman was, was Steve Jobs. He was actually given a Walkman by uh, then President uh, Akio Morita when Jobs went to Japan to source disk drives for uh, his, for Apple computers. Sony gave him a Walkman, he didn't even bother listening to it. When he got home, he took it apart. Like he took a screwdriver to it and like kind of went through all the little parts to see how this came together because he knew that this was more than a piece of electronics. It was a new lifestyle. It was a way to live our lives in a digitally enhanced, well, it was analog and an analog enhanced way back then. But he saw it, he saw it. And so without that Walkman, I, I think it would have been longer before we saw the iPod and longer before we saw the iPhone, uh, Jobs worshipped Sony. So this is another example of like kind of a, a gatekeeper and a tastemaker who saw this stuff with a completely unbiased eye just for what it was. So yeah, that that the, the Walkman arriving pretty profoundly changed people's impressions about Japan from this kind of loser country out in East Asia to, wait a second, wh why, why is this tiny country able a full of Japanese people, uh, obviously able to make all of this stuff that so like appeals to us in such a deep way. It, it really was kind of a reckoning. I think that's, that's awesome. I, I, I didn't even think of, uh, of Walkman as like, I guess this goes back to Sony's branding, like growing up, I didn't even realize Sony was a Japanese, Sony was a Japanese company. Right. 
you know, the, the name, like you said, doesn't sound Japanese. Obviously now we know, but, um, you know, that, that was not even something that clicked in my mind. My first thought would have been like something like, like the video game movement of like Atari and yeah. Nintendo. And I, and I, I recently watched that, uh, the doc documentary on Netflix, uh, of high score. Yeah. I don't know if you've oh, had yeah, a chance yeah, to yeah, watch yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's so good. So good. Yeah, well um, but I, that was kind of fresh in my mind as like maybe the breakthrough. And it was around the same time, if I'm not mistaken, kind of the early days of yeah. Pac-Man. Oh yeah, definitely. And yeah. And you know, it's, it's interesting. Even at that, I mean, everybody knew Sony was Japanese at that point, but I don't think Sony was, uh, you know, highlighting the fact they were Japanese. And as you said, they had the name that you can't really tell. But, you know, around that time, you brought up Pac-Man, you know, Pac-Man, Space Invaders, Dig Dug, and then probably most importantly, Donkey Kong, which was made by a company called Nintendo. Perhaps you've heard of them. And Nintendo, up until Donkey Kong came out, or right after Donkey Kong came out, famously, when they call, like were dealing with clients, they called themselves the Donkey Kong Company because nobody knew what their name was. But after that hit and after the Nintendo Entertainment System came out, they actually doubled down. They're like, you know, we're not changing our name. We're not going to pick, and uh, we're going to call ourselves Nintendo. We're like a hundred and something year old company. We're not changing our name. And so they, Nintendo was one of the first Japanese companies to, I, I don't know if they made a point of their Japanese-ness in their ads. I, I, I certainly don't, I, but they didn't hide it. They certainly didn't, Nintendo, this doesn't sound like it's from Toledo. You know, it's obviously a, a foreign company. And that was another big moment when Japanese video games started to hit that like, wow, these guys, you know, from Japan, they, they really seem to have their finger on the, the, the pulse of something. And that's why I call the products that are in my book fantasy delivery devices, because things like the Walkman, things like the karaoke machine or the Nintendo Entertainment System and later the Game Boy, uh, they really profoundly transformed the way we dream. It wasn't just the way we listened or the way we played, but literally the things we dreamed about were now being inflected by stuff made in Japan. And that would have a really profound impact, particularly on young people. Um, you know, like my, I was in my preteens at the time. Uh, you know, when I first encountered this stuff, I was actually shocked to hear my grandfather had fought the Japanese in World War II. I'm like, you fought the guys who made Mario Brothers? Like, what? Well, well, like, I mean, I fight them every day on the TV screen, but I can't imagine, you know, actually like fighting them, fighting them, you know, and, and so it was just there. And, you know, on TV at the time, you know, the grownups were all smashing cars with hammers and like Congress people were like blowing up radios on the steps of the Capitol, like, you know, keep Japan out, keep Japan out of our markets. And like, meanwhile, all of us kids were like, damn, bring more of this Japanese stuff in. We love this stuff, you know, and it wasn't just boys, you know, it was girls too. Hello Kitty products you know, and uh, early kind of cartoons and like, you know, the, the, around the, the turn of the 90s, you have the Power Rangers and stuff like that. Japan was never an enemy, let alone a rival to us. It was like this aspirational sort of place to kids who started to realize all of this stuff was coming from Japan, which leads us to the next key moment, which is 1997, a video game called Final Fantasy VII. And Sony used the Japanese-ness of the game as a selling point for it. By this point, you know, it's a, this is a far cry from 1957 when they're kind of hiding their, their, their origins under the name Sony. Not only do they explicitly describe the game as being cutting-edge Japanese video game in the ad campaign, on the TV commercials, it ends with a Japanese woman's voice saying, PlayStation, in like a Japanese accent. This is on like American primetime TV, to promote this game like it's made in japan so you should buy it because it's made in japan not like you should buy it you know it's made in japan too bad but you should buy it this is like the reason to buy this is because it's made by the most cutting edge video game designers in the world um you know love it or leave it you know this is japanese so that was like a huge coming out moment i think for japan as a fantasy superpower up until that point you know in the 1930s and 40s it had been a military superpower in the 1970s and 80s, it had been an economic superpower. Now in the 90s, it had transitioned into this soft power superpower, not hard power, but like intellectual property, ideas, dreams. And that was the big transition into the Japan that we, I think, especially young people, you know, millennials, uh, Gen Xers on, that's the Japan we know, you know, it's never been a rival to us, you know, ever since the beginning. So that's a pretty crazy flip from a literal public enemy number one. Like we're bombing it. We're dropping bombs on this country. 
1945, 44. Suddenly, it's like the arbiter of everything that's awesome and cool on the planet. In just what? What is that? That's like 40 years, 50 years. I, I don't think any other country has ever managed to pull off a uh, uh, an image makeover like that. Yeah, and that, that actually leads me to two, two questions uh, from that. Uh, one, what, what actually changed in Japan that really led to these these changes and making it more of a soft power uh, as opposed to the the hard military power or the, the economic power? What, what was going on for that transfer? And then the second question attached to that is what point did that, I guess you could really, I guess say that maybe the the eighties would be when, when anime really started to kind of, you know, come into the United States culture. Sure. But at what point would you say anime really hit the, the U S shore? Yeah, well, you know, Japan was just really quick to urbanize. It urbanized, it rebuilt and urbanized really quickly. So they had to deal with the problems of really dense, modern, big cities in ways that probably established American cities like San Francisco or like, New, you know, New York City or Philadelphia or Chicago. Those had been there for a long time. They've never been raised to the ground and rebuilt again in modern ways. So Japan, in a certain sense, was grappling with these kind of problems of modernity. Uh, to say it in an academic way, a little bit ahead of the curve of the West, which is why you would get things like transistor radios and Walkmans and like karaoke machines to blow off steam or, you know, manga for grownups, you know, in an era before we have Netflix now, you know, back in 1960s, you didn't have that. How did you chill out as an adult? You know, if you didn't, and, you know, you basically, it was either get, get drunk or read manga, you know, it's still today for a lot of people, that's basically the trend. Why, why not both? But, um, Japan was grappling with these with these issues uh, a little bit ahead of the curve. And as for anime, so something really interesting happened when Ronald Reagan took office. He deregulated. He was a big deregulationist. Um, uh, like a lot of uh, Republicans, he believed that the government should have less of a role in citizens' private lives. And one of his big things was he didn't want the government regulating what was on the television airwaves. And um, so at the same time, he is instituting all of these kind of tariffs and stuff to keep Japanese automakers and Japanese electronic makers out of the American marketplace because there was a big problem with trade friction back then. He deregulates the TV market. Up until that point, there had been rules that prevented uh, cartoon companies from showing products that were on sale in their cartoons. It was called host pitching. It was uh, against, I don't know if it was against a law, but it was kind of unspoken rule you didn't do that. And it had actually gone to court and it was, it was a really big deal. And it was believed that that protected children from, you know, unscrupulous companies who were trying to sell toys to them through their entertainment. Uh, but when Star Wars hit big in 1977, there's no rules governing movies. And Star Wars, as George Lucas famously said a couple years after making Star Wars, all the money is in the action figures. Like it, it totally transformed how children's entertain how how things were marketed to children the tv stations and the tv animation producers were like well, why do movies get to do this and not us they've been lobbying the government reagan came in they had a sympathetic air boom all of those restrictions are gone the problem was americans didn't have any content ready to go we hadn't been making content like that we hadn't been making this kind of advertorial content where there's like a merchandise that's being sold based on the show guess who had that a nation named Japan had plenty of content like that ready to go, whether it's Voltron, whether it's Robotech, whether it's all of these co-productions like the Transformers, uh, which was based on a Japanese toy line. It was uh, the story was added by Marvel Comics, but it was animated in Japan. So it's, you know, an interesting co-production. G.I. Joe, you know, that real American hero who was animated in Tokyo. Um, all of these shows, when I was growing up as a kid, as a preteen, Saturday morning cartoons, the bulk of them were made in Japan. And so we were getting this huge dose of Japanese kind of artistic sensibilities without, at this point, this is kind of like the Sony thing, knowing that it was necessarily from Japan. The stuff was all made in Japan, but like the Transformers are all speaking English. It's on a Marvel comics. You know, G.I. Joe is a real American hero, like I said. And, you know, if you didn't know any better, you know, the Thundercats seemed like they were 100% made in America or what Voltron. The big explosion came with cable TV in the 1990s when the Cartoon Network started putting on a kind of anime block and they didn't have any of the restrictions that broadcast TV did. So they could show like uncut anime that was made for teenagers in its kind of raw state, Sailor Moon, 
Cowboy Bebop, Gundam Wing, Dragon Ball, Dragon Ball Z. And that like, you know, ushered in this huge wave of young people who just be turning on the TV and suddenly it's Toonami or like the anime block. And now because it's Japanese is why you tune in in that kind of post uh, 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 PlayStation, post Final Fantasy era. So, you know, the the and also simultaneously with that I, I, on um, there is a company called Tokyo Pop that is bringing translated manga to the West and putting it in every American bookstore. Uh, back, remember bookstores like Borders? You know, we don't really have these anymore, unfortunately. I miss them, but you know, it's where I spent three weeks, three nights yeah. a week. I was there every Thursday or Tuesday, whenever they stocked. <laughs> Same here, yeah. How big? How big were the manga shelves? They were big, right? There was a whole section of the store that was dedicated to manga, at least yeah. at the Borders that I shopped at. You could live in there. It, it was yeah. small at first. Right. It was small at first, but then. It gradually went to one bookcase, and then it was two, and then it was three, and then it was the entire yeah. row, and then it was front and back of that row. You know, it just kept growing. I, and I don't know if y'all remember Walden Books. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. where I used to go. The it was like kind of right by my house. So, I mean, they had a, a superior selection than Barnes & Noble and Borders at the time. And unfortunately, they went under, but that's where I would, I would just go there. And I could spend, like, I just, like, kind of start flipping through, pulling, like, Tachiyomi or whatever it's yeah, called in yeah. Japanese, like the Dan Reed, like just kind of peek through the books and say, "Oh, this looks kind of cool." Okay, yeah, I'm gonna do this. That you know, that it was that was kind of my gateway. No, I don't want to say my gateway, but one of them. But you know, the New York Times spun off a manga bestseller list because manga kept knocking the American titles off the the their graphic novel bestseller list. I think that's really telling, you know, because citizens, consumers. All of us were voting with our wallets, you know, not there's anything wrong with Spider-Man or whatever. I mean, I love American comic books, too. They're awesome. But, you know, manga, I, I think the reason that manga and anime hit was because in America, comic books and cartoons were seen as kids stuff in Japan. They weren't. And so they really hit this like adolescent and tween spe- sweet spot hard in a way that there was nothing that could compete with it in the West. And that's kind of true for all of these fantasy devices. When the Walkman hit, there was no competition for it. You know, there's nothing else out like it out there. When Hello Kitty hit, it's not like we had like, you know, Goodbye Doggy or something like that. There was no rival. It was just Hello Kitty. You know, the Nintendo hits like Atari had self imploded already with the great uh, American uh, game over uh, the, the game crash. So like all of these fantasy delivery devices, including manga, just arrived they made a beachhead without any kind of opposition at all which is how they were able to take over manga were able to take over borders you know when when you were talking about advertising through uh through your content um whether it was like the product that was in the show like the characters and whatnot my my son's four years old and really big into um into sentai like power rangers yeah yeah power rangers type Uh, stuff yeah so, so that was my for me growing up that was my one of my first exposures um and without even knowing uh, you know, as an elementary school kid that this came from Japan, I didn't even realize that you were watching cutscenes from the actual Japanese footage. And then they swapped out like with the American high school kids. I didn't realize that until I grew up much later. But, um, but uh, my, uh, my son, um, we, he, well, he's, he's half Japanese and we try to introduce him to some like Japanese language content wherever we can. And uh, one of the things while we were visiting our in-laws over in, uh, in Japan one year, one of the things that came on was like Common Writer and the oh, uh, wow. like yeah, yeah. Shows on Sunday morning. So, so we put that on. He really, really fell in love with one of the shows. So I was able to find it online with some streams oh, and, yeah. and, and the shows would download with the show and then commercials. So you would get like yeah. commercials no, get from those episode blocks that would air during the episode in addition to the actual episode you download. Oh man. So it's crazy. <laughs> You're just watching like the, the the Power Ranger episode and the 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 robots they just introduced yes. in that episode, right there they already had the toy in the shelf like yeah. the next day right <laughs> into the kids' brains right and like this right. is a funny thing yeah. like as yeah. kids we wanted that like I wanted to buy the robot from the show you know like adults were trying to protect yeah. us from something like they're trying to protect themselves they want to protect their wallets you know 
But, you know, this is interesting. So like what we're talking about here, it leads into another really interesting point is that regardless of whether this stuff in the 80s or the early 90s was marketed in a Japanese way, we're, we're consuming this. We're playing like Japanese video game companies dominated the console game market from about 1985 through 2000, like 15 years. It's basically, of course, there's other game companies making games, but it's mainly Japanese stuff that we're consuming. We're consuming manga. We're consuming anime. We're watching the Power Rangers. So we are kind of subconsciously as young people um, digesting all of these Japanese tropes, all of these Japanese styles, all of these Japanese forms of expression, even though they're not being explicitly said as such. So when we get older, as we age, you know, and then the, you know, the turn of the millennium, suddenly we have become connoisseurs of Japanese entertainment, whether we realized it or not. Like now we know about like powering up. Now we know about, oh, of course the five guys are going to get together in a giant robot to defeat the other guy. You know, of course you wear sailor suits when you're, you know, fighting evil and there's talking cats, you know, and guys in tuxedos, you know, we, all of these things that we've absorbed from all of this anime and all of this Japanese content, all of the Japanese gadgets we've been using, like Walkmans and like, you know, Tamagotchis and stuff, um, you know, emojis, uh, all of these kind of made in Japan fantasy delivery devices we've been using have so transformed us that now we want the Japanese stuff in real time with as little mediation as possible, you know, and this dovetails nicely with the, you know, revolution of streaming entertainment and stuff, which is why, you know, you see Netflix has an anime section now. And like you see kids online getting angry at translators for making changes in, in the way that the content is translated. This is unthinkable in the 80s. Like, they changed all of the character names in my favorite show when I was a kid, Robotech. Like, it's not Ichijo Hikaru, it's Rick Hunter. You know, like, that kind of thing is unthinkable now. Like, you, if you did that, the, the fans would, like, you know, string you up, you know, and uh, put you in internet jail. Uh, so, but it's a testament to, you know, how much our tastes changed, um, how they Japanized and uh, globalized you know, in, in a, they're more diverse now because of this. And that's, that's a really good thing. Yeah. Well, I think that really does a lot to answer, you know, why the culture and products really have resonated so much with, with Americans. Um, so my final question for you is for decades now, uh, for since the, the moment it really started to actually arrive here with, I guess with maybe perhaps Astro Boy, Japanese pop culture has gained an audience with adolescents and young adults and those young adults and adolescents have grown up and you have, you know, this cycle where we've had decades now of this interaction with Japanese culture. But one thing I think is really interesting and notable is that it's, it's been successful at bridging the gap in, in the, in creating an audience across genders, across sex, across uh, racial barriers. And it's, it's really interesting. And, and, I just want to get your opinion on why do you think it's been so successful in actually doing that? Well, you might remember from 10 or 15 minutes ago, uh, we were talking about how manga uh, in particular became this sort of voice for the revolutionary movement of student protesters and uh, uh, progressives in, in Japan in the 1960s, and 1970s. Well, when that movement ended, a lot of those people funneled into the anime and manga worlds, and they created comic books that reflected their values, which were not necessarily the establishment's values. Um, you know, Gundam famously is a, a series about war where the protagonist doesn't want to be fighting at all. Like, it's kind of unthinkable from a Western perspective that you'd have a hero who is like this. Imagine like Spider-Man, but he's like, no, no, I don't want to use my powers. I don't want to use them. I don't want to do anything. I, I just I just want to go back to my normal life. I, I don't want to be doing any of this at all. Um, you you get this kind of different perspective because Japan fought a massive war and lost and, you know, you have this kind of student protesters who are protesting against their authority figures and, uh, you know, against the forces of, you know, militarism and, and you know, uh, things like that in their country. So you have this basis where the illustrated entertainment in particular has that kind of revolutionary bent to it. But they're, they're savvy enough to not be parroting, parroting this like some kind of propaganda. It's just kind of quietly in the values of the characters and things like that. And when you combine that with the fact that there is a much more diverse array of, 
of anime and manga in Japan than there was of cartoons or, or comics in America, where in Japan you have everything from literally cartoons, uh, you know, and comic books for, for toddlers all the way up to like, you know, erotic stuff for adults. There's like math comics, there's sports comics, you know, there's all sorts of things out there. So just the diversity of viewpoints, the diversity of storytelling, and the fact that the, you know, the characters are, are very stylized. They're, they're, the, the, the characters are caricatures. They don't look Japanese in many cases. And just like Hello Kitty, you can't really tell what her emotion is. So she becomes a receptacle for your emotions. I think just by virtue of the fact that Japan developed this kind of artistic shorthand made it very easy for people of all races and all genders and all sorts of people out there to project themselves and see themselves in these characters in ways that you couldn't if you're like talking about like a Caucasian hero or like, you know, an African-American hero or whatever, who are very specifically you know, who they are in, in, in Western media. So Japan had that kind of, it, Japan isn't necessarily a very diverse country, but it's, it's a very, it, it's form of expression is very welcoming and very diverse. And I think that really appealed to people all over the world who were kind of tired of the status quo of Western storytelling. It, it comes at it from a, of a different angle, from a different viewpoint. And there's all sorts of people. There's many more female artists in Japan, for instance. You know, Demon Slayer, which is the big thing in Japan right now and coming to America this year, a young woman made it, um, even though it's a boy's comic. So you have these blurring of gender lines and like, it's okay for men to read comics for girls, okay for girls to draw comics for boys, you know, or, you know, queer, you know, or, you know, whatever your background is, it's okay to make comics for yourself or for other people. Um, it's just a totally unfettered free space in Japan. And I think that really appeals to people all over the world. Absolutely. So with that, we're actually going to wrap up this discussion. Too bad. We could go for hours. I know. That's what I was going to say. We could go on for hours, but, um, it is, uh, the beginning of your day in Japan and the end of our day here. So in the interest of your life <laughs> and ours, we're going to let you go. But before we do that, uh, we just wanted to mention that if you really want to follow up with these ideas and learn more about it, Matt has a phenomenal book, which I honestly, and I'm not just saying this because you're on here, but this was, I think, the <laughs> best book of 2020. So I highly recommend Thank it. You. It's called Pure Invention, How Japan's Pop Culture Conquered the World. And uh, you can get it literally anywhere, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, I actually had it uh, at my public library as well. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's actually how I read it first. And then I went and bought it. I'm so happy your library had it. Libraries were so helpful in making of that book. So I just, that's really great. Thank you for buying it. Thank you for having me. Yes, yes, absolutely. So we'll definitely get you on the show again. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> if, if you would uh, be so willing to be on here. It was an honor to be invited. And uh, yeah, let's do it again sometime soon. And hopefully see you all. See, oh, sorry, see y'all. Definitely. definitely. That wraps up our journey for today. We'd like to send a special thanks to Matt Alt for joining us today on our journey to Japan. And don't forget to join us on our next audio journey to the land of the rising sun.